0: I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible to a very familiar passage of scripture in uh, Matthew chapter 9. Now, I I know what happens when you turn to certain passages of scripture. If somebody says turn to John 3:16, you dutifully do that, but you sort of mentally check out because it's such a familiar passage of scripture. Well, the passage that we're going to look at tonight is one of those passages. It it gets trotted out every time there's a missions conference, or if there's some some need for evangelism that's perceived by by people in the church, this typically becomes the passage that that people go to. And so usually it it comes in sort of an isolated sort of context, and very rarely do we allow Matthew to actually lead us to chapter 9 and to this particular paragraph so that it does what he intended for it to do when he wrote it under inspiration. So one of the things I would like for you to do tonight is to sort of put all of your preconceived thinking about this passage to the side and and let's follow Matthew tonight as he unfolds this paragraph for us. So let's read it together and, and then I want to make some observations from the text. to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now if you were listening to Matthew and listening to this epistle, or this gospel rather being read, your mind would immediately recognize that the language in verse 35 is very familiar to your ear. And I want to show you where it shows up. Go back if you don't mind to chapter 4. And Notice what is going on. In in chapter 1, Matthew has given you the genealogy of Jesus. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 2, you are convinced by Matthew's presentation that this Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed, appointed champion that the entire Old Testament has been announcing and that you have been waiting for. And when you get into chapter 3, the forerunner, John the Baptist, actually confirms this by announcing his coming, and then in chapter 4, or rather at the end of chapter 3, God the Father himself confirms this at the baptism of the Lord. And then you go into chapter 4, and you see this great temptation where the enemy of God, the ancient enemy of God, stands on top of a mountain and actually offers to this anointed, appointed champion all the kingdoms of the earth. And If you go all the way back to Psalm 2, God has announced that he is going to put his king on a mountain, and from that mountain he is going to rule the nations, and he can ask the nations for his inheritance, and, and his father, God, will give it to him. And so you see this anointed, appointed champion being taken to the top of a high mountain and offered all of those nations. And, of course, you know the story of how Jesus resisted that temptation by quoting Scripture. And the devil flees. And then the Lord uh, chooses his apostles, his disciples, and in verse 12, he begins his ministry. And in verse 23... Here's what that ministry looks like. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So that his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Do you see the parallel at the end of chapter 4 and at the end of chapter 9? It's like Matthew is bracketing a certain segment in the gospel. And when you have parentheses that surround something, generally what is going on in the middle is of great importance, and we're going to see that here in just a moment. So that's the setup As you come to chapter 9, you have been reading about something this anointed, appointed champion has been doing that is bracketed by these two very similar paragraphs. And so as Matthew comes to the end of that, he he wants you to observe something. And that's the first thing that I think we need to observe tonight. We must see what Jesus saw. And as you come to chapter 9, for time's sake tonight what he saw was multitudes. He had been walking up and down a, a, a particular piece of terrain, and as he walked up and down in that terrain, he saw multitudes, and then Matthew wants you to understand what that meant. He saw multitudes, and then, then Matthew says, now this is, this is a metaphor for what he saw. He saw them as sheep having no what? Having no shepherd." And of course, you immediately know what that means when a flock of sheep is without a physical shepherd. They're exposed to incredible danger and affliction. And that's exactly the condition in which these sheep were in. They were harassed. They were helpless. They had been completely ravaged because they were without a shepherd. What you may not remember, and certainly what I didn't until I actually began looking at this text a little more carefully, was that A shepherd in the ancient world was not just somebody who watched over physical sheep. Oftentimes, the king, the ruler of a particular country, would be considered as a shepherd, and the people would be his sheep. And he would have shepherd responsibilities to protect and to preserve and to provide for their well-being. And and, and just a real quick example of this, if you think back to ancient Egypt— and to the common depictions that you know from your history books and your archaeology uh, lectures, you, you'll remember what Pharaoh looked like, right? He had two things in his arm. He had what we call a quail, which is sort of a whip, and then he had what, remarkably lo- or what looks remarkably like a shepherd's crook. And, and so he would be seen as a shepherd. Well, here is Jesus, and he is coming into a particular piece of territory that had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and as he comes into that territory, there is no shepherd, there is no ruler, and an enemy has come in and he has ravaged these people, and we're going to find out who that enemy is by looking at the kinds of things that he had afflicted the people with. And as you make your way through chapters 7, 8, and 9, you begin to discover that a lot of these afflictions are actually coming from the ancient enemy of God who has been opposing God's people all along. Here is Jesus, and he is in this terrain, and he is looking at the people who are going about their everyday lives in all of these villages, and on the outside they look fine. But really, they have been completely ravaged by an enemy. And that leads Matthew to say now that you see what Jesus saw, you need to understand how he felt about this. You need to understand what he actually felt or felt in chapter 9, verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with what? With compassion. There's a big difference between the idea of compassion and the idea of pity. You know, you and I would see people who are uh, in in circumstances where life has has really handed them a difficult scenario, and our hearts would have a lot of pity. Sometimes our pity is so strong that it moves us to do something. We may buy them a meal. We may pay a a month's rent for them. We, We may exercise ourselves in some way to help. But the word compassion here is very, very different. Let me give you an illustration that that might help. And and the illustration is very simple. Imagine a nine-year-old boy who comes home one day from school, and he comes home early. And as he walks in, as he kind of bursts in the front door of his house, he immediately knows that something is wrong. Because dad is home from work early. And it sure looks like mom has been crying. And so when he asks about it, they say, oh, no, no, everything's fine. You just go, go along and play and we'll call you for dinner. But he knows instinctively that something's going on. And over the next several weeks, he begins to really understand that life is going to change for their family because of a word that is coming into his vocabulary called cancer. And dad is all of a sudden having to go to the doctor all the time and and then he's having to take these treatments, and his hair falls out. And he begins to realize that this is really serious. And one day, about eight months later, there is a very difficult day in this nine-year-old's life when he has to say goodbye for the very last time to the earthly body of his dad. And as he stands there, <clears throat> something rises up inside him that, that, that causes him to decide to give the rest of his life to the study of medicine so that nobody else will have to go through this. That's the kind of imagery that this word is intended to bring. Jesus looked at these people and there was this internal decision that he had come to do something about this. And that's really the third thing that Matthew brings to the table. That is, we must see what Jesus saw. We must feel what Jesus felt. But we actually need to believe what Jesus knew. Jesus knew something. He knew that as he walked up and down this terrain, that this was a kingdom that had been promised to Abraham. It had been promised to David. It had been promised to to the sons of David, he knew that this was his kingdom. He had come to his kingdom, he had come to his house, and he had found it in total disarray because the under-shepherds that should have been caring for that house had actually opened the door to all kinds of of spiritual uh, brokenness. And, And here are these people now who have been afflicted by a very ancient enemy. And Jesus knew two things. He knew that he was the rightful shepherd over these people. He knew that. He knew that he was the great shepherd. And he also knew exactly what had to be done in order to take all of this back. He knew that as the good shepherd, he would have to do what? Give his life for the sheep. I mean, this is an immense idea here. Jesus is coming to his own house, he's coming to his own kingdom, and an enemy has ravaged it. And so Jesus, as he walked around announcing the incredible news of the kingdom that he had come to establish, recognizes that as the great shepherd, he is the rightful heir of all of this. He is the king in Psalm 2 that is going to be on this mountain in this kingdom But in order for that to happen, he can't just be the great shepherd. He has to be the good shepherd. And before that kingdom can come, something has to happen. He has to what? He has to give his life for those sheep. And that really brings us to the fourth thing in the passage. As Jesus prepares for this, we need to recognize what Jesus did. Now, remember I told you about that parentheses. We saw a really similar language in Matthew chapter 4 at the end of 4 and then we see it again at the end of 9 and I said to you that there's something going on in the middle. What had this great shepherd, this good shepherd, what had the king been what had the king been doing for those chapters and I would submit to you that he has been doing two things. He has been declaring his authority And that happens in a very famous sermon that begins in chapter 5 and goes all the way through the end of chapter 7. You know it as the Sermon on the Mount. He is introducing an entire different approach to righteousness. And he is doing so in a way that the common everyday person, the people that he interacted with in these villages could easily understand. Because at the end of chapter 7, when he is done talking, the scriptures say, the people heard him gladly because he spoke to them as one having what? Authority. So that's one of the things that we need to recognize that Jesus has been doing as he walked up and down in these cities. He has been declaring his authority. But he's been doing a second thing. He has been displaying his power, his ability. And what happens beginning in chapter 8 and going all the way through chapter 9 is systematically in, in nine different miracles, this king who has been announcing his authority begins to go into the realm of his enemy and he begins to undo everything that enemy has done. And you can see it. You can actually trace it. Look if you will. Let's just quickly tonight and I'm being very sensitive about the time. Look at, look at chapter 8. He comes down from the mountain, and he meets a leper. And, and in essence, what, what he says to the leper is, is, I will be thou clean. This man is full of leprosy, and he says to Jesus, if you can, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I will. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. And Matthew says, now I want you to notice something. He touched this man. Now, that may not mean a lot to you other than maybe that was real act of kindness of the Lord, but that would have been amazing in Jesus' day, because if you touched a leper, his uncleanness would become your uncleanness. And here is the first time that somebody touched an unclean person, and and not only did he not become unclean, this man became clean. This is a stunning Display of authority and then notice that there comes a centurion in verse 5 and, and appeals to him Lord my servant is, is, is paralyzed and, and, and is struggling and Jesus said I will come and heal him and the centurion says Lord you don't have to come I am a man under what authority And so when I tell a servant or a soldier to come he comes when I tell him to go he goes you don't have to come Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And to the centurion in in verse 13, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Look at verse 23. His disciples are on a boat in the middle of a storm, and Jesus is sleeping at the bottom of the boat, and they went and woke him, in verse 25, saying, Save us, we are perishing. And he says to them, Why are you afraid, O ye of little faith? Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a boat that's about to go down. But these men had every reason to be terrified, physically and just on a human level. And then he rose, the scripture says, and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. The idea there is that it was instantly calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obeys? And then in verse 28, he comes to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, and he meets two demon-possessed men, and, and they immediately recognize him. And they say, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And in verse 31, the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, don't send us to that place of torment yet. Let us us go into the herd of pigs. And in an amazing, unthinkable display of mercy, this king says to them, you can go in the pig's. And in verse nine chapter nine, he comes to his own city, Capernaum, and there is a man who comes who's been paralyzed. And he says to him in verse 2, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes, the religious leaders, took issue with this. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your heart? For what is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man, that's a title, by the way, you can go back to Daniel 7, and there's this beautiful image, this vision of an ancient of days sitting on a throne, and we know that that's God, and somebody comes before him, and the title of that person is the Son of Man, and he's given a kingdom, and he's given authority, and he's given a people. And Matthew is using that title here to let you know that that person in Daniel 7 is actually the one standing here. And he's talking. The Son of Man hath authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. Down in verse 18, there is a ruler who came in saying, my daughter has just died. But if you come and you lay your hand on her, she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And on the way, there is a woman who has been afflicted by a a, a blood disease that has afflicted her for 12 years. And she reaches her hand and she touches his garment and power goes out and she is healed. And Jesus senses that. And you can see what he says to her. Take heed, daughter, your faith has made you well. And then he goes to the ruler's house and everybody begins to mock the idea that she is sleeping and he goes into the room and closes the door and he took her by the hand and the girl arose and the report of this went throughout all of that district. And then if you notice in chapter 9 verse 27, he heals two blind men who address him as the son of David and then in verse 32 there is a demon possessed man who was mute, and the demon and when the demon had been cast out, the man the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. You know what Jesus has been doing? He has been walking up and down his kingdom, and he has been observing all the damage that had been done by an enemy. And systematically, he is going, and he is forgiving, and he is cleansing, and he is restoring, and he is uh, remaking. And all of a sudden, you begin to realize this is the long-awaited king. And he doesn't just declare his authority, he actually is displaying that authority. And it's in that context that Matthew comes to the very end of this paragraph and he says, now you need to do whatever Jesus tells you to do. So what does Jesus tell the disciples to do? He, they, they have to respond by doing what Jesus told them to do. So what did Jesus tell them to do in light of all this? He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but what? The laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. And, And for a moment, let's assume that they pray that. Let's assume that they observe and they pick up what Jesus is doing here and and so they go to the Father and they start beseeching the Father to send laborers into his harvest. In chapter 10, beginning in verse 1 and going all the way down to verse 15, guess who the laborers are that Jesus chooses and that with the authority of the Father he sends out. It's these very men. And so let, let me just close with this illustration. You know, sometimes when I, and sadly to my own shame, I, I've even taught it this way uh, in the past. You come to a passage like this, and it's almost like Jesus is wringing his hands. There is this harvest, and, and, and it's ready, and it's ripe, and it's going to perish, and there aren't any laborers, so why don't you beg God to send laborers? It's almost like Jesus is powerless here. But if you go back to the paragraphs that that Matthew has put inside those parentheses, what you discover is that Jesus isn't powerless at all. He's unbelievably powerful. So maybe what's going on here is not so much a powerless Jesus pleading for a harvest that is about to ruin if only God would send some people. Maybe, Maybe Jesus has a very different thing in mind. Maybe Jesus is looking at these few laborers and he is saying, look, if you will ask the Father to put you into that harvest, I have the power that will, will reap that harvest with the few of you. It's a very different sort of understanding in this passage. When uh, my son, who's now married, and, and, and I'm so thankful for the ministry God has given him, but when he was about <clears throat> nine or ten, We lived in Wisconsin, and and my son was pretty convinced that the will of God for his life was that he would be uh, on the Green Bay Packer football team as a a Christian football player evangelist-type ministry. And I looked at him, and then I looked at me, and I understood immediately that that was not the will of God for his life for a lot of reasons. But how do you tell a kid that? So we let him play on this little sort of uh, community league, um, uh, the... The Sussex Sharks. And I remember he got his little uniform and, and uh, he would go to these games, and, and everybody on that team had played together before, except him. And so he didn't get a lot of play time. But if I ever wanted to see him, all I had to do was find the coach, because right next to the coach was my kid with his helmet in his hand, and he would follow the coach around, and he was constantly talking to the coach. You know what he's saying to the coach? I know this because the coach told me later. He was saying this coach put me in coach i got I, put me in it didn't matter who came off the field my kid was put me in coach and so one day the quarterback got the wind knocked out of him and the next thing i know probably out of total frustration my kids going in to be quarterback i'm like this is it And I don't know what it looked like to anybody else, but it looked like a mob just kind of descended around him and the ball pops out of this mob and it goes right into the hands of the receiver of the other team who scores a touchdown. My kid's only play was an interception that was run back. But I learned something from him. What if we were to say to God, God, I know you are going to reap a harvest. Can I be a part of that? Would you put me in the game? Would you let me reap somebody? Would you let me reap a neighbor? Would you let me reap a, a friend? Would you let me reap somebody I work with? Would you, through your power, by your spirit, use me to bring some of this harvest in? I think that's what Matthew's trying to get at here. And if you and I will do that, we have a Savior who will do all the rest. If we just say to the Lord, Lord, I'm available, I'm willing. This could be one of the most impacting paragraphs in our Bible. And it could result in an incredible work of God in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. Father, thank you tonight for the time that we've had together. Lord, I pray that in the moments that we have looked through this text, Lord, it has been a very fast, quick look at this text. There's so much you have placed here. I I pray that your spirit would take your word And you would use it in our lives to bring us to that place where we recognize that you are the Lord of the harvest. You are the one doing all of the reaping. And and we get to have a part in that, Lord. And so we come and ask you to do what you said to put us into that harvest in some way, in some place, in some capacity. And Lord, we'll trust that your word will do its work in our lives, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.